Welcome to this episode of the Future Champions podcast. My name is Stuart Taylor, and this is the first episode of a two-part interview with Amanda Christensen. Amanda is the co-author of a very different and difficult book, Where the Magic Happens. It is a book that Amanda hopes no one would ever have to read. Through her own experience and tragedy, Amanda identified the need for a book that explains to a child what they can expect when they are treated for brain cancer. In this episode, Amanda shares the joys of raising her beautiful son, Cooper Christensen. Then the fear felt when she began to sense something was wrong. The heartbreak of discovering that Cooper had a form of brain cancer that no person has ever survived from. Finally, the complete tragedy of the death of her son. This is a difficult story for Amanda to share and it is the first time that she has shared so openly and recounted the story in its entirety. It may be difficult, but it is really important. We all have to overcome adversity. We hope not to the same extent that Amanda and her husband Michael had to, but in the ashes of this tragedy are some important messages, like never giving up, like always getting up, even if you don't want to, when every bone in your body wants to lie down and never wake up, you get up. That the pain of losing someone directly relates to the love you felt for them, an equal and opposite reaction. The more you love, the more pain you will feel if you lose somebody. But that love, despite the pain, it's worth it. I know that Amanda Christensen would have given anything to find a cure for her son, but I don't think she would have given up the pain if it meant she would never have felt the immeasurable love she received from her son, Cooper Christensen. He asked me if he was going to, you know, am I going to die? This was the question that Amanda Christensen was praying that her six-year-old son, Cooper, would never ask. Six years earlier, Amanda Christensen could hear the excitedly agitated voice of her husband, Michael, as he rushed to her bedside at the Budrum Private Hospital on the Sunshine Coast. At 37 weeks into her pregnancy, Amanda and Michael had arrived at the hospital for a checkup, only to be told that Amanda would have to remain in the hospital until their baby was born. They decided on a plan where Michael would return to their home in Harvey Bay to organise their other two children and return later in the week with gear for the hospital stay. Michael was still in organisational mode when he received a phone call two days later advising that the baby was not waiting. So he jumped in his car in the hope of being there for the birth. Cooper was um, a product of IVF, so we had to go through IVF to have Cooper. And um, Cooper came in a hurry because <laughs> um, we did all our IVF down at the Sunshine Coast. I went down for a checkup and with I was 37, not quite 37 weeks, I was 36 weeks and something. And went down for a checkup and he said, oh, I think you've got to, you know, just stay here, you know, at the Sunny Coast for the weekend. I'm going to admit you into hospital on the Monday. We're going to keep an eye on you. And Dunks Cooper was breech. And he said, and we'll let you get to 37 weeks and then we'll, you know, we'll look at 
hopefully. Well, they wanted me to get to 38 weeks and then they said, well, probably do a Caesar. And um, because I did have Jesse two weeks early and Zach was actually born at home. So they didn't want to take any chances. So I'd stayed in hospital. Michael came back home because he had his own business at that point. So he left me at the hospital on the Monday, sort a few things out, check on Jesse and Zach, and then he was going to come home and, you know, back to the hospital on Wednesday. I uh, had to ring him at uh, very early hours of the morning, like at two in the morning, telling him my water's broke and, yeah. Baby's coming. Baby's coming. Cooper did not wait. Um, Michael, unfortunately, missed Cooper's birth. Um, and, yeah. He um he actually funny story he did get pulled over by the police for speeding and he just said write me a ticket and do whatever you got to do um, my wife's in labour at the sunny coast I've just got to get there and they just said mate you've just got to slow down get there safely but just like we'll go but you've got to promise you can't speed and he's like okay and then yeah unfortunately yeah he missed it the anaesthetist rang him and said we can't wait for you we'll call you when everything's done so yeah he got to call it gimpy to say that Coop was born, just get here safely, they'll be waiting for you. So, yeah. Cooper came three weeks early, eight pound, ten ounces. So, yeah. Wow, lucky he didn't go. Uh, mm, <laughs> yeah, I think about that a lot. Yeah, the big fella. But, yeah, he was ready to come. So, yeah, there was no stopping him once. He was just like, yep, yeah, I'm done. We stayed in hospital for just over a week. And um, they just wanted to make sure that he was all okay and I was okay after an emergency Caesar and, um, yeah, came home and then life started. Amanda remembers being in the hospital by herself with her newborn when Michael arrived. I was still in recovery and they said, yeah, and they let him in and he came in and met Coop for the – so they saved all the – you know, the weighing and all the all that stuff. They waited for all the weighing and the length and everything until Michael got there. So I know for Michael that's probably one of his biggest regrets is he never got to personally, I think, yeah, experience that side of it because unfortunately we never had any more children after Cooper. So Cooper was it. I didn't have anybody with me when I was in there and we, I was delivering, you know, and I was having Cooper. So I think for me it was just the moment when I could hear Michael out, in the, you know, rushing through the corridors to get to us. And then when he saw and held Cooper for the first time, that always sticks with me. I, I think at first he was a little stunned because it did not go to our plan. So he, yeah. that was out the window. And then, yeah, he was just smitten like he had – his son, you know, and every, I mean, I don't know personally, but I think every father, when you have a son, I think it's something very special because you know that they're going to be carrying on your name, your family history, you know, all those sorts of things. So I think for Michael, he loves Jesse and Zach as if they're their own, his own, but it, I think it is something different when it's, you know, when it's yours specifically. To give that some context, the Christensen name does have a, a bit of legacy to it, doesn't it? Does here in Harvey Bay, yeah. Michael's family, his dad and that side of the family has been here for over 100 years. So cane farming and, you know, they're very well known and um, 
His family's pretty much still here. He's got uncles, aunties. Both grandparents now have passed away, but for the most part, there's still quite a few Christensen's here. Amanda had two children, Jesse and Zach, from a previous marriage before she met and fell in love with Michael. They married and took on the joys of raising their family of four together. The addition of Cooper Christensen would bring their family number to five. Returning to Harvey Bay, it wasn't long before Cooper's personality shone through. Honestly, I think it was easier this time around. I think it was a lot harder when I was younger and on my own. So to have, I think... Really, having Cooper, it was the dream. It was how it was always meant to be with a loving husband, partner. Um, And Cooper was, he was such a good baby. Like he was so easy. He came wherever we went. Nothing was too, you know, too much of a bother. Jess and Zach just adored him. He didn't have to do much at all. (laughs) So that's probably a benefit of having older brother and sister. So, but yeah, he was... So happy. He was just, yeah, he was like a little old soul, like really. He was so wise and so just funny and cheeky and up for a laugh and just a happy kid. What makes you say that he's like he was an old soul? A lot of his mannerisms and a lot of the questions he would ask you were like, what makes you think of something, you know, like that? Very, He was very curious and very interested and I'm not sure if it's because he was always around adults but he was just very inquisitive and really quite he used to think about what he would ask you you know if he was going to ask you something he you could see he'd been thinking about it for a while and he was just interested in a lot of different things that you wouldn't think a little child would be interested in and Probably in fairness, that's all due to Michael's family too because we still have cattle farms and we still – his family was still doing sugar cane and I think he got exposed to a lot as a little child and especially when we go to Michael's grandparents' house when they were still here. Um, you know, we'd always talk and look at old photos and all those sorts of things. So I think he had a lot of influences and he was around a lot of conversations and – he just picked up on a lot of things. So he was very inquisitive. But yeah, he was just, yeah, cute kid. Amanda shares a story about how Cooper first started to walk. It gives an insight into his character and how he completely understood that he was the centre of the Christensen household. He didn't walk straight away. So we actually were worried that he wasn't going to walk because he wasn't even crawling on his first birthday. So I just said, oh, I remember we were getting him checked and we're like, you know, he's just not doing anything. He's just sitting there. And then it was sort of like watching and I was like, okay, so he throws a toy. Jesse and Zach go and take it straight back to him. He actually doesn't need to do anything. (laughs) So it was sort of like, okay. But we did get him checked out by a pediatrician and – the cheeky little bugger after everything. We're like, no, he's not crawling. He's like, yeah, all right, we'll make an appointment. So Cooper was nearly 14 months and went down to the paediatrician. And he said, all right, sit him on the ground and I'll just want to have a look at him. And he's like, has he crawled yet? And we're like, no. Nah. He gets up on his hands and knees, but he doesn't do anything. He's like, okay. 
and right there and then in front of the pediatrician, the little bugger crawled. So <laughs> he, he made us, like, it was just, well, we could not believe it. And he was just laughing. He thought it was the funniest thing. But he crawled and then he literally crawled for three weeks, got up, walked, and then he walked for about three days and then he was literally into everything. He was like he was running. So didn't mm. crawl for very long. He just... He made a fool out of us that day. We're like, no, not crawling. We put him down. He crawled straight to the pediatrician. So, And did you end up having to pay the bill or they give it to you for free? No, <laughs> we paid for that. <laughs> and it was a trip to the sunny coast because that's obviously where he was born. That's where his pediatrician was. So, yeah, good fun. When did you find out or when did you have a feeling that something wasn't right? If we go back to not when we found out, but now that we know what it was, we probably, if we had and, you know, you can never really do the the hindsight or the what-ifs. And, you know, and I have been told not to go, you know, there's no point in going back to there. But if we actually, the first time we noticed, Cooper woke up. We were mucking around one day and Cooper's like, I can go cross, do cross-eyed. And we're like, oh, so can I. And, you know, and we did it. We mucked around. That was funny. But then the next morning he woke up and I was like, oh, Coop, don't do that with your eyes. You know, it's not good. You know, don't do it. And he's like, I'm not doing it. I was like, oh. And I was like, so I just sort of ignored him a bit. And then I was just, you know, I'd walk past him in the lounge room and I'd just have a look at him. And he's right. This one eye overnight just turned completely and looking towards his nose. And I was like, that's not good. So I went to, (laughs) my first thing is I went to, the optometrist, because both Michael and I wear glasses, so I was like, oh, I'll just go and get it checked. And they said, oh, no, there's nothing that, you know, not sure, but we don't specialise in that. you best to go to your GP and then they'll send him to a specialist. So I went to the GP. I said, look, this is new. He's woken up like this and he goes, oh, this is what it probably is, but I will get you to go and see them. So I was like, okay. And so we did that and... During like that month or two, Cooper started falling over. He started, you know, grasping for a straw but missing it. So he just couldn't quite see the straw or so we did that and eventually went down to see an eye specialist and he said, yep, this is what it probably is. It's, you know, strabsmosis or however they pronounce it. Sometimes it just happens and... He said, you know, we could do an MRI. He said, but nine times out of ten it shows nothing. It just happens. So we're like, okay, sure, that's why he's falling over. That's why he's seeing two things. It's, you know, his eyes cross-eyed. So so he had his first eye surgery when he was three and they he had to wear an eye patch for so long that didn't fix it and then he had the eye surgery. So he had the first eye surgery. He was three, got that done didn't work and we were explained, look, sometimes it takes more than one go. Um, He might need another surgery. So again, he went for a second surgery. And then after that second surgery within, you know, and this is like over 10 months, I'd said to Michael, I'm like, there's really something really, really wrong with Cooper. Like there's something not right. It's not just his eyes. So I had gone and gotten, and he was in kindy at this stage, and even they were saying, look, his balance isn't great, you know, this is happening. 
And so I went and saw, got his ears checked, you know, thinking there was an inner ear thing. Saw a podiatrist <laughs> thinking that there was something, you know, wrong with his feet or something. I don't know. I was checking everything at that point. But um, that was all coming back. Nothing. I went back to the doctor and said, look, there's still something. He said, no, it must be his eyes. You need to get them, you know, fixed, blah, blah, blah. Um, and yeah, and after I said he had a really bad fall at kindy, actually, he came up, he had the worst blood nose, split lip, he had a cut on his forehead and I was like, nah, there's something really wrong. Like there's just, I don't know, there's just something really, really wrong and no one's listening, but I've got to go and figure it out. So I rang up his eye surgeon and I said, look, I need an emergency appointment. Like he's in Brisbane, but I need to get down there. So we went down there and we were in the, I was in the waiting room with my mother-in-law, Michael's mum. They called us in and at that point Cooper could hardly walk in a straight line. I had to either carry him or hold him to walk or I'd put him in a trolley or something. He watched us walk into his room and he's like, how long has he been like that for? And I said, oh, like this the last two weeks. And he said, you need to go and see your paediatrician. And he said, who is he? So I gave him his name. And Michael's in Adelaide at that point. So I rang Michael and said, oh, look, he thinks that it's something wrong with Cooper's brain. He doesn't think it's his eyes. So he sent us to see the paediatrician first thing Monday. So Michael flew back from Adelaide. This was on the Friday. So we went to Nambour where his paediatrician was. He had a look at Cooper and he said, yeah, we're going to send him for an MRI tomorrow. So we had the MRI on the Tuesday. We were getting the MRI. Well, Cooper was getting the MRI. And I remember saying to Michael, it's taken too long. Like it's, they told us it would be 20 minutes, half an hour. It's been over an hour. No one's come and seen us. There's something wrong. You try not to think of it. And so I was like, it's one or two things. It's either something's not good or they can't find anything. So they're just running a few extra tests. It's one or the other. And Cooper came out and they said, yep, you've got to go back and see a pediatrician. They're sending the results straight to him. So we're like, okay. So he waited till Cooper woke up and everything because obviously he had a general anesthetic to be asleep for it. And then, yeah, on that day he um, saw Cooper and then he said, oh, I've just got to talk to mum and dad. Yeah, he put the scan up on the up on that whiteboard and he said, oh, they've that. And you could see it like it was, it stood out. It was just this mess in there. And um, he said, I've already spoken to the um, – doctors at the Royal Children's, you've got an appointment tomorrow morning. Cooper's got a brain tumour. Um, when I'm not going to tell you what it is or anything that's up for them tomorrow, but you've got an appointment tomorrow, you need to start Cooper on this medication and, you know, you've got to get down there tomorrow. He was crying. We were like Cooper's sitting on the floor of the doctor's, you know, so who, who, who so. was crying? The actual doctor was, he gave us both a hug and he was just like, I think because obviously he knew what it was, but he was just telling us it was a brain tumour at that point. But he, when he got upset and he was apologising to us, I was like, okay, 
this isn't great. And it's so hard because Cooper was, like he was four and I'm trying to hold it together because he's still sitting on the floor and I remember I'm just standing outside there and I'm just numb. Like I just, I was like, what the heck has just happened? Like you just don't. Oh, I don't know. I, I even now I still can't fathom that. But um, we went back to because we were staying down at Sunshine Coast because we thought we'd make a weekend out of it. So we went back to our unit, and I'm trying not to cry in the car, but I couldn't help it. And Cooper's in the back, like, "What's wrong, Mummy?" And oh, nothing, you know, fobbing it off. We rang Michael's mum and dad said, "Oh, you've got to pick Jesse up from work. You guys have got to come, you know, meet us down here." So they ended up rocking up late down the sunny coast. We told Michael's mum and dad that we've got to go. You know, we want you guys with us. So, yeah, we didn't sleep much that night. But then I woke up and I was like, no, it'll be fine. We're going to drive to Brisbane. You know, if he has to have surgery, chemo, you know, let's just get rid of it, take it out, do the surgery. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. That did not happen because um, – then on the Wednesday, 31st of October, yeah, we got to Royal Children's. They took Michael Cooper and I into the doctor's surgery and as soon as you walk in and there's a room full of them, <laughs> that's like, okay, this is not great. So, Sorry, what do you mean by there's a room full of them? Well, there was doctors. There was our doctor who we now know. He was our main doctor, oncologist. Then there was another female doctor. And then there was a social worker and then there was also another neurosurgeon in there. So we had a few people in there and um, they all did their watch. You know, they made Cooper do these tests and balancing tests. And then they said, all right, you go out in the waiting room with, you know, your mama and your poppy and that. And so Jesse, Zach and Michael's parents were in the waiting room. Once he left, Cooper left the room. That's when they dropped the bombshell that um that it was a brain tumor, but unfortunately, the tumor that Cooper had was um one of the worst ones a kid can get. So it was called um they called it DIPG, so diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, and unfortunately, with that type of brain tumor. There is no cure. It's pretty much terminal the minute they find it. Um, They gave Cooper at that point six to nine months to live. The only thing that they could offer was um, dexamethasone, which is a steroid to help with the swelling because he had so much swelling around his tumour. And just if we decided to go down that pathway, 30 rounds of radiation treatment. So, yeah, that was a... That was a pretty crappy day. And then obviously once they told us and then they gave us a minute, then Michael went out and grabbed Jesse and Zach. And then I had to hit the doctors. They told Jesse and Zach. So the doctor explained it to Jesse and Zach, who obviously were young themselves when when this happened. Um, I took Jess and Zach outside. Michael stayed um, with them for a second, just checking on Cooper. And then... Then we brought Michael's parents in and Jess and Zach were out there with Cooper and we had to tell Michael's parents as well. So in a matter of a half an hour, I had to say, (laughs) hear the doctor tell three times 
yeah, that Cooper was not going to make it. But, yeah. Go back to the first time. Mm. Do you remember how that was delivered? I give them credit because I would not. And even now as a nurse, to have to give that information, I don't wish it upon any doctor to have to give. And especially, I kind of, and knowing now, like I, as a nurse now, I've been with you know, I'm on the other side of it now and I've been standing there in a room when a doctor's had to tell, you know, a patient that they have found, you know, cancer or something like that. But I think also when it's a child, I think that just adds, it's just a different level when it's a child. I think I just don't know how they do it. And I've spoken to them since and they don't, I mean, it's not something they enjoy, but, you know, unfortunately especially with Cooper's tumour, that there's just no cure for it yet, that it's just like it, it's just unfathomable really. It's just so hard to believe. And Cooper's tumour actually, Neil Armstrong, who has been on the moon, his daughter Karen, or Karen Buffy they used to call her, she was two and a half when she actually passed away from the same brain tumour as Cooper. And that's 59 years ago, I think. So there has been no no further treatment or options or anything. How did you and Michael process those words when they came out? Like, did you hear them? Did you actually comprehend that, that it was terminal? No. They – it was so weird because – they told us this, or all of us, and I heard it three times. And he said, all right, you need to come back in a couple of days because then we need to sit down. And if you're going to do radiation, then we need to do that planning for that. And I remember we all just sort of left and we're standing in the car park of the children's hospital. And I'm just like, I'm just, and I'd lost it at this point. I was just crying like Michael's mum, they're trying to take Cooper and I just completely lost it. But then we're just standing in the car park and we didn't know what to do. We just, we literally were all of us just standing there and we actually did not know what to do. It was like, well, what do we do now? So we ended up staying down, um, staying down there because we knew we had to go back in two days anyway. So we stayed down there and... One of the things he did tell us was, you know, I don't want you to Google anything. I don't want you to try, you know, do all this. He said, you just need to let it sink in first and then whatever questions you have, I'll answer it when you come back. So I didn't do it. I listened to him I, the first night. I didn't even look at it. I didn't really sleep actually the first night. Then you can't help yourself. You're onto it. <laughs> you are like DIPG survival, has anyone survived? Like I'm Googling everything and nothing, nothing would come up. It was just like worst story after worst story after worst, like all these children are dying from this brain tumour and Cooper's got it. And it was just like, I just, yeah, like why? That's one of the things like I know I'll never get an answer 
part still gets me today. I just don't know why, you know, and there's no rhyme or reason, you know, why it happens. But, you know, you just, I mean, he was our little IVF baby, you know, and, yeah, just incomprehensible. But then you had to make a decision about whether you commence with treatment, mm. radiation. Yeah. Even though you'd been told that the he, he could not survive. All it was going to do was give us more time. So we chose to fight and you know what? Maybe Cooper was going to be the one that was going to beat it. Like who knows? Like we couldn't not try. We couldn't not throw everything at it. So, yeah, we met back with them and said, yeah, we'll do the radiation and fight it with everything, you know, Cooper had. And um, that meant that, you know, planning the mask and the radiation itself and and even that day, even in planning the radiation, that was just, oh, that, that was just another thing. Like it was just to try and explain to a little four-year-old, like we got to make this mask that's going to fix, you know, and then you got to, this mask, once you land the table, then you're going to be bolted to the table, you know, and you're not going to be able to move because the mask actually gets bolted to the table for your radiation because they mark the actual mask. So the laser is directed specifically to the tumour, obviously, because it's obviously in your brain, so you don't want to hit good brain cells. Yeah, so trying to explain that, and that... I don't know, it just, it didn't sit well with us. It was like, this is not, you know, they had like, and I mean, no offense to them. They were amazing. The social workers were amazing. The nurses, everyone was amazing. But it just, it just seemed, and even now when I looked at the photos of that day of them trying to explain radiation to Cooper, I was looking at it and I'm like, wow, that was, <laughs> that was pretty, um, I'm surprised he even got it, but. I know at that point too that I made a decision that I was not going to, because they were calling Cooper's brain tumour. They were calling it some weird name, and I can't remember the name they were calling it, but it was some weird name, like it was this, oh, he's got this boo-boo or something. And I was like, no, 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 no. We're going to be honest because he's a smart kid, which we'd already known. He might have only been, you know, little, four, but he was a smart kid. And um, so I said, no, no, if we're going to do this, we're doing it honestly and proper. Like I'm I'm telling him he's got a brain tumour. Oh, you know, he's only young and maybe I was like, no, no, we're good. <laughs> so mm. sure enough, I did. I said, oh, you know why you – we found out why you were falling over and, you know, why you had to have glasses and – and I said, oh, no, you've, you know, you've got a brain tumour. And I said, and that's what's making you fall over and, you, you know, you're wobbly and, you know, seeing two things instead of one. And, and he's like, oh, okay. And I said, but the only way we can fix it is we've got to do this. You know, we've, you've got to have this mask made and you've got to do all this treatment and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, oh, okay. And he got upset for a little bit because he's like, oh, will it hurt? And I was like, no, no. You know, it won't hurt. Yeah, it's going to take a long time. Like, we'll be here for a little while. We're going to move to Brisbane for a couple of months and, you know. But, no, I was very honest with him. And, yeah, that day was um, probably just as hard when I actually had to say that mm. he had it. But, I mean, God, that kid, 
I remember after radiation when we went away and one of the kids like, what happened to your hair? Because obviously he lost his hair where the radiation was and he's like, oh, I've just got a brain tumour. Like he just said it so matter of fact, like, oh, yeah, I've got a brain tumour. And I remember his parents, they'd be like, oh, oh my God, like, and they'd say, hey, come back here, <laughs> you know, but he was like, oh, yeah, I've got a brain tumour and I had radiation. Like, he was just like, this kid was amazing. So, so proud of him. Like, yeah. you know, he he had general anaesthetic for his radiation 30 times. Like, you know, tough kid, a really tough kid. And he never... Never, not once did he ever cry and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. Not once did he ever beg me to not do it anymore. So kudos to that kid. But clearly you didn't want to do it anymore. You didn't, you, didn't, you wanted it to be fixed. Yeah. And it just never, no matter how hard and how committed you were mm. and how much you loved him, there was nothing that you could do. No. No, and even knowing, like, and that's, I think, the hardest thing with that is that you're watching him do this radiation and take all these tablets, you know, and all this stuff to help him. But if what the doctors were saying was true, wasn't going to cure him, wasn't going to mean that once he was finished, it was going to be all gone. All it was really doing was giving us more time with him. Mm. So, and I would have done that 30 times over. Like, yeah. I'd still be doing it today if it meant I still had him here today. So, I would have done it for as long as they told us to. I'm going to stop part one of the interview with Amanda here. This is a very hard topic to listen to, but I would encourage you to join us next week for part two, where Amanda continues to share Cooper's journey and the pain they felt in having to accept that Cooper Christensen would die from one of the most aggressive forms of brain cancers any person could ever have to face, let alone a young child. This has been a hard topic to discuss. It has been hard for me, and I can honestly tell you I've shed so many tears during the production of this episode. If you feel you need support, don't be afraid to talk to a friend or a family member. We are all here to help each other. This is the Future Champions podcast. My name is Stuart Taylor. Stay safe and join us next week for part two of our conversation with Amanda Christensen.